Hey, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but when Angie was doing the announcement, she called the, the offering basket a communion basket. Yeah, I think pretty much wrecked the service, Angie. Um, but maybe it was kind of prophetic. Actually, I think, no, that's pretty cool because that's really what the offering is. It's a way we commune with the work of God in this world and we commune with each other. So it's not my place to say thank you because you didn't give it to me. Um, you gave it to God and you gave it for us, but thank you for, thank you for what you gave nonetheless. So on behalf of Jesus, I think I can say that on behalf of Jesus, right? So let's, let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to preach. And we ask that you would help us to believe. And I thank you, uh, Lord God, that according to scripture, you, you do both. You're the one that speaks the word and you are also somehow responsible for hearing the word in us, faith in us. And so God, be glorified in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, uh, while I was a youth pastor at a really large church in California, something rather fascinating happened at family camp. We had a group sharing time, and a woman got up, young woman, and she talked about how she was back in the, her yard gardening, and she heard the phone ringing up on the porch, and she ran up to get the phone, and as she ran up to the phone, she ran by the swimming pool and noticed that her toddler was drowning in the swimming pool. So she saved her little boy, and then she said, just think, if the phone hadn't rung, my son would have died. God made the phone ring, and everybody praised God. The very next person to stand up was also a woman. She was a mother. She said, the same thing happened to me, and the phone didn't ring. My son's dead. Why is that? Why is it that some people get COVID and die. Some people get COVID and don't even have any symptoms. Why is it that some people are homeless and other people are wealthy stockbrokers in New York City who live in mansions? Why is it that some are born into poverty and some are born into privilege? Why is that? Why do you suffer? Several thousand years ago, a man named Job lost all his children to murder. Seven sons, three daughters. He also lost a host of servants. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-donkeys, all in a day for, for no apparent reason. Then he was afflicted with painful sores all over his body and a wife who constantly nagged him saying, curse God and die, as he sat on a pile of ashes scraping his sores with shards from broken pottery. Job. The life of Job is probably the world's best argument against the existence of a just God. And you will find that argument in the Bible. So why does Job suffer? Why do you suffer? Well, Job had three friends who came to visit. They sat with him for seven days and seven nights until Job opened his mouth, crying out in agony, why can't I die? And then his friends begin to speak. They defend God. For 34 chapters, they present the classical arguments that religious people present to people who are suffering, that religious people present to explain how a just God allows or even causes suffering. Job 4.8, Eliphaz says, Job, you reap what you sow. When most people say you reap what you sow, don't they mean you get what you deserve? And isn't that what most people refer to as justice? You get what you deserve. Well, how could we deserve anything? What would we deserve it with? 
Well, I think Eliphaz would say our, our choices, our free will. Late one night when I, when I couldn't sleep, I watched the Reverend Bob Tilton raising money on TV. He quoted Job 22, verse 27. You will pay your vows, you will decide on a matter, and it will be established for you. Hallelujah! Now, Reverend Bob didn't mention that it was Eliphaz, Job's friend, who spoke those words. See, he agrees with Eliphaz. If only you paid your pledge to this televangelist, Job, you would not find yourself in this position. If only you chose to pick up the phone and make your vow, Peter, you go back to sleep. If only you chose the thing that I tell you to choose because it's good, well, it will protect you from evil. That's how human religion works. The clergy gives you the knowledge of good and, and evil, give you the law so you can make good choices because you get what you deserve. In the old covenant, the covenant of law, God basically said, here's the law. If you all choose good, I'll give you stuff. And if you choose evil, you'll suffer. That's the covenant of law. Job is found in what we call the Old Testament, but Job probably was not in the Old Covenant. Job probably lived before the law was even given, and almost certainly he lived outside of the group to whom it was given. Uh, almost certainly Job was not a Jew. Well, Job's friends argue that his suffering must be the result of his bad choices. That's the free will argument. When that doesn't work, they argue that God sent the suffering to fix Job so that he would make better choices. That's the character building argument. Job 5.17, blessed is a man whom God corrects, says Eliphaz. I preach that hundreds and hundreds of times. God disciplines those that he loves, says scripture. But Job argues with the friends, saying, I'm not suffering because of bad choices I made. And I'm not suffering because of the bad person that I am, because of my bad character. Job 13, 15, though God slay me, says Job, I will hope in him. I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. I will be honest with God. Job 27, 6, I hold fast my righteousness. Job 30, verse 1, they laugh at me, they mock me. Though God slay, though God slay me, I will hope in him. It's like for 34 chapters, Job cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He argues to God's face, and yet he still proclaims, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, in chapter 8, the Lord speaks to Job out of a whirlwind, saying this. Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? And then God questions Job about creation. Were you there when I made the stars? Were you there when I made the rain? Were you there when I made ostriches? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? What a line. Will the ox spend the night at your manger? That's Job 39 verse 11. God appears, questions Job, until Job answers. Job 42, verse 5. Now my eyes see you, and I despise myself. That's, that's my judgment, in other words. I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. That can be translated, I am comforted in dust and ashes. As if he's saying, I rest in the knowledge that I'm dust and not the judge. Well, anyway, Job's friends, this is the layout of the book, they defend Job from they defend God, I'm sorry, not Job. They defend God from Job for 34 chapters. Then God appears in the whirlwind, rebukes Job, and then he says something utterly shocking to his friends. He says, I'm furious with you, Eliphaz, and your friends. For you have not spoken what is right about me as my servant Job has. So Job, pray for these guys that I don't give them what they deserve. They're wrong about me. They're wrong about me. They're wrong about me, says God. I've known a lot of folks that have really, really suffered. And perhaps their greatest suffering has been religious folks that try to explain the reason for their suffering. 
Why are religious folks so desperate to explain other people's sufferings? Maybe they themselves are terrified to suffer because they don't trust God to justify them. That means to make them, them right. They think they must have to make themselves right, justify themselves. They trust their knowledge of God and their own ability to make choices based on that knowledge because they believe a person gets what they deserve. So if they can't fix your suffering or explain your suffering, they'll blame you for your suffering because otherwise they might have to admit people get what they don't deserve. And none of us can justify ourselves or anything good that we think we possess. Well, God says that they're wrong about him, and Job has spoken what's right. Then, you remember, God restores Job's fortunes twice as much as before, and the book ends. So all those explanations were wrong in some way, and God never seems to explain any of this to Job. You know, I've read books on Job, a few of them. In seminary, I took an entire class just on, on Job. For a long time, I thought the point of Job was this. We just don't know why Job suffered. That's the politically correct answer. That's the answer that I was trained to give. The only problem with that answer is it's the wrong answer. Because the book tells us exactly why Job suffered. It's right there in the prologue, the first two chapters. Now, Job didn't know. That's, that's part of his suffering. That's part of suffering. But, but we do know. Job did not suffer for any bad choices he had made. And Job suffered actually for all the, the good choices made by or made in Job. Listen to this, Job 1 verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's how the book starts, blameless and upright. He didn't suffer for his bad choices. And the, the sufferings, well, they may have changed Job's heart, but, but Job needed changing less than anyone in, in all the world, including the land of, of Israel. You know, most Bible scholars think that the, the land of us is the land of Edom. And that's fascinating because you remember that Edom is Esau, comes from Esau. Esau is Jacob's older brother, the firstborn. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, says Scripture at a certain point. In Job 16, 9, Job says, God has hated me. And God says it in the book, yep, Job spoke what is right. But to say that God hates is to say that love hates, right? Because God is, God is love. That hatred, the, the hatred of God is not the opposite of love. It must be the painful expression of love. The opposite of love is apathy. Well, anyway, Job in Edom knew about God. That's amazing. He must have learned that in the things that have been made, like Paul talks about. He, he knew that God is creator and God is good and God is just. He knew that his word is the way, the truth, and the life. The logos, that is the reason that his, that his word, his logic, is the true light which enlightens everyone in, in the words of John. Now, now, Job 1 verse 1, Job was blameless and upright feared God and turned away from evil. Verse six, now there was a day when the sons of God, this probably is referring to all the angels, nobody's quite sure. There, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, look, Satan, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> wow. Notice that Satan has to get permission. Did you notice that? And notice that God grants it. Thus marauding warriors, natural disasters destroy Job's children and possessions. Job 1 verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from a mother's womb, and naked shall I retain, return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then once again, Satan appears before God, and Satan says, well, he still has his health. And God says, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Job 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? That's the absence of the good. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So why did Job suffer? Well, the prologue tells us right from the start. But for some reason, we never seem to take the prologue seriously. Perhaps it's because we don't take the spiritual realm seriously. Perhaps it's because we don't like being portrayed as laboratory rats, right? As lab rats. It reminds me of this old movie wherein Two old and powerful stockbrokers, Randolph and Mortimer Duke. Do you remember this? They run an experiment with two men's lives just to find out if goodness is something in man's nature or simply the product of man's environment. In other words, the quality of the hedge around him and his house. Movies titled Trading Places. Dan Aykroyd plays Louis Winthorpe III, a respected white New York stockbroker, Eddie Murphy plays Billy Ray Valentine, an underprivileged black con man. Wish I could show you all this, but clips get shut down on Facebook, but you may remember. When Billy Ray Valentine is caught stealing and Louis Winthrop III is at the top of his game, the Duke brothers arrange for absolutely everything to go wrong in, in Winthorpe's life and for absolutely everything to go right in Billy Ray Valentine's life. They arrange for them to trade places and they bet a dollar. They bet a dollar and then they wait to see what Winthorpe and Billy Ray Valentine will do. Well, does God know what we will do? Does he? Of course he does. Does God know what, what Job will do? <laughs> well, yeah, of course he does. Does Satan know what Job will do? Hmm, I'm not so sure about that. But God does. God is not testing Job in order to learn some truth that he does not know. God is testing Job to exhibit the truth that is himself to Satan. And God is betting far more than a dollar. He's betting his honor as the creator of Ha'adam, the man, Adam, the man, created in his own image and likeness. He's betting, and yet he knows the outcome. God is not testing laboratory rats. It's the popular American notion of Christianity that portrays God as testing people the way a scientist tests rats. Uh, the notion that God is running a test, making a list, checking it twice, because he's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Scripture says he already knows. He knows. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. God is not testing rats. God is looking for a champion. He desires a champion. 
The original meaning of that word is one who defends another's honor. In England, the office of the king's champion was filled by a knight in full armor who would ride into Westminster Hall during the coronation and challenge anyone to single combat that might dispute the king's right to rule. In other words, he would defend the king's honor, the notion that the king was good and would make good. At Elitch's amusement park, you know, just a few miles away, several years ago, I put my daughter Becky on a ride with little airplanes and fake machine guns that went around like this. It was in kiddie land, you know. Well, there was this other little girl on the ride playing with the machine guns, and every time the, the ride came around, she would shoot at me, and I'd smile and laugh, you know, and she'd shoot at me. Well, Becky saw this, and she wasn't laughing. She saw this little girl shooting at me, and she just grew furious. I mean, once the ride was over, she tracked this other little girl down. If you know Becky, you can, you can see this. She got in her face, and she said, Please don't shoot my daddy. He's the only one we've got, and we love him very, very much. I had to go, like, get Becky and pull her off this other little girl. And yet it was one of the very best gifts that I've ever received because Becky was my champion. Remember when the Philistines fought Israel? They had a champion. They fought Israel, mocked God. They had a champion named Goliath. That means splendor or glory. They're a champion. But Israel and God had no champion until God chose a shepherd boy, a child named David. Did God need David to kill Goliath? Or was that a gift to David? to become the champion of God. What kind of champion is a child? Pretty good one in my experience. When my kids were little, they didn't even know what I did, and yet they knew me. They knew who I am. All sorts of people have championed me for things, things I've done or championed me hoping that I might do something for them in return for being champion. They've championed me for a reason but I was not the reason. If a child loves what the father gives more than who the father is, that child is spoiled and miserable and enslaved to their own desires. But, but if a child loves the father for no reason other than the father, that child is happy and free, free to receive all things along with the father who now freely gives all things to that blessed child. And that child is the champion, a champion of that father. Actually, that child is in the image of the father, reflects the glory of the father. In this picture, should be a, you don't have a picture? Oh, that's too bad. Bummer, because in this picture, I have a picture of Becky and Elizabeth, and they're looking at me. And Becky's eyes are just big, and her face is lit up with, with joy. You see, it's my glory reflected in her face. And in her sister's face, she thinks I'm good. And so her face reflects my, my glory. I wasn't good for something. She just thought I was good. She was three years old. I had come home from work, and she's just looking at me, her face beaming. I wasn't good for some reason. I was the reason that life was good. And her little arms around my neck at the end of a stressful day in which everyone expected something from me, well, that was heaven for me. See? <laughs> that reflects my glory. Now, do you remember Satan's challenge? God has bragged on Job like a proud papa would brag on his only son. And Satan says, does he fear you for no reason? Does he fear can be translated, does he reverence? Does he honor you for no reason? See, Satan only understands fear, not love. I mean, I think John even tells us that in his gospel, that he can't comprehend 
love. He can't comprehend the light. Satan only understands fear, not love. Scripture says fear is the beginning of wisdom, but perfect love casts out fear. So do you hear the challenge? Satan says, does he love you for no reason? In other words, God, of course he loves you because you work for him. You give everything to him. He loves you for that reason. He loves you for a reason which means he doesn't love you. He uses you. No one actually loves you, God. Actually, there is no such thing as love. Only lust, only hunger, only business, only threats and promises, only fear and desire. They only serve you because you threaten them with hell and you bribe them with heaven. God, you're just like me, only bigger. There's no such thing as love, which is to say there is no such thing as you. You know, Scripture says God is love, and God is the creator. That means that God is love without reason. He is the reason. Love is the reason. Love caused the Big Bang. Love is the ground of all being. Love isn't good for something. It's just good. God is love, and the word of love, the logos, the logic of love, is reason. You can't prove love. Love proves you. He even proves you with his reason. You can't prove love, but you can testify to love like a champion. God is love, and love is the creator, and you are his creation. And that means you don't deserve love. You don't deserve God. You don't deserve anything. What could you deserve anything with? Justice cannot mean that people get what they deserve, because people deserve Nothing. Paul writes it. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that was not given to you? In Romans 11, he writes this. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And he's quoting God talking to Job from the whirlwind. Job 41 verse 11. And God speaks from the whirlwind, declaring his glory in all creation, and this is what he says. Job, who has first given to me? King James translates, who has first prevented me or stopped me? Who has first given to me or stopped me that I should repay him, that he should deserve anything? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. It's all grace. So there's nothing to deserve. And there's nothing to deserve anything with justice cannot mean people get what they deserve because people deserve nothing and then there would be no such thing as justice but there is justice people deserve nothing yet people do receive something which means that for people everything is grace you see it's the grace of god that destroys our ridiculous notions of justice and it's Satan that bolsters and preaches our ridiculous notions of justice. Why? Well, because Satan wants people to get what people deserve. Because <laughs> people deserve nothing. Satan desires that everything would be nothing. Satan desires that all creation would be desecration. But that's not justice. Justice does not mean that people get what they deserve. Justice means that God gets what God deserves. What does God deserve? All glory, praise, and honor. God deserves what God wants, and God wants ha-adam, man, made in his own image and likeness. So justice, is not satisfied with hell. Justice is only satisfied with heaven. Justice is satisfied only when we love as we've been loved and God is love. He wants a man that reflects his glory. He wants a champion. He wants a man, ha-adam, made in the image and likeness of himself. So, so now do you hear Satan's challenge to God? God, there are no men. God, there are no people who love you in freedom. Only religious people. Only scribes and Pharisees who take you and use you for their own reasons, but none that love you for no reason, none in your image. And God says, Satan, consider my servant Job. 
So Job lost everything, fell on the ground. Chapter 1, verse 20, he worshiped, crying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you worship God in the midst of your suffering, you're the glory of God. <laughs> you are the image of God. You're the champion of God. Love for no reason is the reason for Job's suffering. Love for no reason is the reason, and so it's perfect freedom. Love is the substance of God, and you are his testimony, testimony of God, and not just to people. Because if you're like me, maybe you've thought, God, I, I, I understand the purpose for St. Paul's suffering. I mean, I understand the purpose for those missionaries suffering over in Africa, and then that article's written in Christianity Today. I, I understand the purpose of, of the martyr's sufferings, but, but God, I suffer alone. No one sees my suffering. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. God sees. When you worship him in the midst of your suffering, you thrill the creator like Becky thrilled me that day at Elitch's amusement park. God sees and Satan sees. And when Satan sees your faith, hope, and love in the midst of your suffering, it burns him like fire. Because it is fire. It's the glory of God in you. It's the wisdom of God in you. Ephesians 3, verse 9. This is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. When you don't understand why God asked you to do something or not do something, but you, you obey in faith because you love him, when you're suffering and alone and he, and he doesn't do what you ask him to do and yet you worship anyway because of who he is, when you're reviled and blamed for your suffering by crowds of religious people, but you don't curse God, you call out to God and you, and you bless God. When you're stripped, beaten, and feel forsaken by God and you don't know why, and yet into his hands you still commit your spirit, then you are the wisdom of God revealed to angels, and through you, God storms the gates of hell and he burns the prince of darkness with the unquenchable fire that is his relentless love, his very presence. Your seemingly unimportant private suffering is of the utmost importance to God and an entire new creation. Chapter seven, Job cries out, God, leave me alone. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him and you test him every moment? What is man? Man is the image and glory of God. The glory of God is a man fully alive, wrote Irenaeus in the second century, agreeing with St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. What is Hadam? What is man? Man is the champion of God. We are the champions, my friends. Bum, 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 bum. And we'll keep on fighting till the end. We are the champions. We are the champions. Losers are winners, and we are the champions of our God. No, I know what you're thinking. Dang. Thanks, but, um, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I'm really up for that. Well, Job didn't know that he was up for that either. Chapter 4, verse 17, he asks, can mortal man be right before God? Can mortal man be pure before his maker? So you see, if Job is blameless in his heart and not just with his lips, if Job is righteous, maybe it's not his own righteousness. I mean, maybe something in Job is not mortal. 
Like he said, not a mortal man, as, as, as he puts it in verse 17. You know, in, in the Old Testament, Job is almost this like mythical figure, kind of like Melchizedek, remember him? As if Job is a picture of someone else from somewhere else, some time else, some place else. And in the Psalms, David testifies. David, remember God's child champion. David testifies, none is righteous. No, not one. None is good. No, not even, not even one. That means that none has proven Satan wrong and vanquished God's honor, at least up until the day that that Psalm was written, which was a long time after Job was written. No mortal man. Even in that movie, that old movie, Trading Places, uh, the experiment reveals it's not man's nature to be good. Or if it is, that nature is like hopelessly buried under mountains of, of bad. The crook acts like a respected businessman, but he's still selfish. Got that picture, right? And yes, when Winthorpe, when Winthorpe is forced to suffer, he becomes a deranged crook disguised as Santa Claus, and that's not good. Each was a slave to the happenstance of this world until Christmas Eve. They see the truth. The truth sets them free. They see each other, and they become who they were destined to be. <laughs> I'm just always amazed at how the gospel shows up everywhere, and even in the most ridiculous movie. Well, on Christmas Eve, you see, a new nature is born in our manger and it appears that Job knew that. Job hoped in that. And it was reckoned to Job as righteousness. It's called faith. Job 16, verse 16, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. Job 19.23, oh, that my words were written in a book. What a great line. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God. And at the end of the book, Job does see God. God doesn't give an explanation. God gives himself. The revelation of God seems to kill Job and then resurrected Job from, from th those ashes. Job sees God and then he exclaims this in chapter 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent. I comfort myself in dust and ashes. What did Job see? John writes, no one has ever seen God. God, the only son in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known, John 1.18. Job must have seen God's champion, God's perfect champion. And from the wound in his side, he must have seen that he had traded places with Job and given himself for Job, even made Job part of himself. He championed Job that Job might champion him. You know, Satan's challenge, it was never fully answered, was it, until God said, have you considered my servant Jesus. Until on the cross, Jesus was loaded with all our sins, suffering, and sorrow, and Satan unleashed all his rage. Until on the cross, Jesus was delivered up to Satan for the destruction of our flesh and the impartation of his spirit. Until Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he was blameless. And he didn't know. In that moment, he didn't know why he suffered, but he worshiped. From the pit of hell, he worshiped, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he blew open the doors of hell from the inside out. On the cross, he loved God for no reason. And he is the reason, God's reason. And now God sends his spirit into our hearts, crying, 
Abba, Father, faith, hope, and love in you. Is Christ born in you? It's Christmas in you. And so you see, God reaps what God sows. Did you know that? God reaps what God sows. God sowed a seed in the womb of this earth and into the, the womb of the Virgin Mary, and on the last day he will reap humanity in his own image and likeness. That's justice. So Job didn't suffer because he had made a bad choice and now deserved justice. Job suffered to display God's justice which is God's good choice in Job. God's will in Job. God's word in Job. God's judgment in Job. God's choice in Job. God's spirit in Job. It's what God deserves. Man made in his own image and likeness, the champion of God. <sighs> but dang, <laughs> looks like it hurts. So you may be saying to yourself, okay, fine, whatever, Peter, but why does God need champions? I don't think he does. He didn't need David to kill Goliath. I didn't need Becky to run up to that little girl and tell her off. <laughs> it's not a curse. It's the blessing. It turns out that the thing we fear most now, because it hurts here in this fallen world, the thing that we fear most now is the very thing that will be revealed as the greatest of all blessings, and that thing is love. Real love. I mean, love for no reason. God. To learn love is death and resurrection. To live love is life in the kingdom of heaven forevermore. In 1990, I traveled to Romania to help train newly liberated pastors, uh, church workers. One night, we ate dinner at Pastor Cornel Jovis' house in Transylvania. After dinner, Cornel took us into the living room. He walked over to the shelf, and he pulled this box down from the top shelf. It was like a shrine, and it was filled with pictures of his wife, Cornell's face glowed as he spoke of her. You could make out her features in the face of Cornell's six-year-old daughter who came in to kiss him goodnight. A few years earlier, she had been diagnosed with cancer, leukemia. Cornell prayed fervently. He read every medical book he could get his hands on, trying to find a cure. Finally, through Christians in Great Britain, a bone marrow transplant was arranged and paid for. All they needed was an exit visa. The communist authorities told Cornell, we will grant you the visa if you renounce your faith and inform on the other pastors in your church. We know about your church. Cornell, I remember, told me how he struggled He'd been spied on, persecuted, interrogated, even radiated. He lived in a house where the secret police had killed the pastor before him by electrocuting the drain pipes, and he went up on the roof and killed him. Well, Cornell and his wife decided what to do together. I remember him saying to me, Peter, Brother Peter, it was the hardest day of my life. It was the day shortly after the revolution when he held his 30-year-old wife in his arms as she slowly passed from this world, leaving Cornell and their, what, five, six-year-old daughter behind. When he told the story to my friend Steve, as Cornell showed him the box of pictures, Steve began to cry. Cornell looked at Steve with compassion in his eye, and he said, Brother Steve, don't cry. It's a privilege to suffer for Jesus. Cornell is God's champion. And God is Cornell's champion. We all champion something. We can't help it. 
We all honor something. We all worship something. We all seek to lose our lives and then find our lives in something or someone. You may say, well, Peter, nothing's worth dying for. Well, then you will have the horrid experience of dying for nothing, never having lived. Heaven is dying for God with Christ Jesus and then receiving everything back with Christ Jesus, including God. You see, all your suffering is a dress rehearsal for an infinite communion of love that is life, that is the kingdom of God. So why do you suffer? Maybe you're God's champion. And so God looks at Satan and says, consider my servant. And then he says your name. Well, anyway, what did Job see when he looked into that whirlwind? I think he saw something like this. The only blameless man that ever lived. On the night that he was betrayed by all of us, he saw that he takes bread because this moment is at the boundary of space, time, and eternity. He takes bread and breaks it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he takes the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The life is in the blood. Drink of it, all of you. <laughs> now, I'm sorry, but because I grew up in a particular generation, I just need to say this. This is a breakfast of champions. <laughs> it's time to eat and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. I was 29 when I heard those words from Cornell. Brother Steve, it's a privilege to suffer for Jesus. Because they came from Cornell, having spent the day with him, walking with him, seeing him, I believed those words, at least a little bit, like a seed. But I think that seed has kept me from killing myself a few times during the last 30 years, <laughs> along with some other things. It's a privilege to suffer for Jesus. But now you may be thinking to yourself, okay, fine. Cornell is like a martyr. Cornell's suffering is obviously for Jesus, but not my suffering. Wrong. <laughs> Absolutely wrong. So right now, as you're standing there, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think of your suffering, all right? Maybe it was an accident, something that someone just did to you. Well, if you're angry, you feel rage, you need to forgive that person. And they'll hurt. 
And then that suffering, though, uh, is transformed from a curse into a blessing because, you see, you just offered that suffering to Jesus, and lo and behold, the scars on your body match the scars on his body. Or maybe you're saying, Peter, you don't get it. The suffering is suffering that I caused. I'm an ass. I hurt people so bad, I, I, I can't even admit it to myself. Well, maybe you're going to have to forgive yourself. You'll notice that the scars on your body still match the scars on Jesus' body. We, both, we, we all have that suffering. So right now, think of your suffering. You've been tempted for years to curse God for this suffering. You've been tempted to curse God and die. But now I want you to bless God and die to yourself. So I think you can do this. You can say, because you see, God is, is sovereign. This really offends people, but I think, you can, I think you can take your suffering and now hand it to Jesus. Because you, you know what suffering is? Suffering is a place where you've lost control of the good. And you know what the good is? The good is Jesus. I mean, you couldn't even know what evil is unless uh, you knew what the good is, right? That's what Job says. Um, Shall we not receive good from him and also evil? Um, you see, all the good comes from him, and your experience of evil is only because he handed it to you, and, and then at a certain point he takes it away or you hang on to it. But this is what heaven is. Heaven is a party where the good flows like this abundant river from one to the other. So, so take your suffering, hand it to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I surrender to you my suffering. Thank You can even say this. Thank you for my experience of suffering. for it's taught me to love the good. And you are the good, Lord Jesus, and you have given yourself to me. You see, some people think this is such a terrible message because I'm, I'm saying you're going to have to die, but you already knew you're going to have to die. But you're not going to die for nothing. You're going to die for love and be flooded with love in such a measure that, well, if you could see it now, well, you would just burst into flames. So say this in your heart after me, Lord Jesus, I give you my suffering, and I thank you for giving yourself to me. Amen. All I'm saying is, in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.